Hi everyone, welcome to this brief webinar um, that's being delivered by myself, Daniel Ramos, trademark attorney in the trademark team at Osborne Clark, and Anna Rawlings, a senior associate also in the trademarks team. So today we're going to just take you through quite a whistle-top store of some of the key differences between US trademark procedure and UK and EU trademark procedure, looking in particular at some of the key points of prosecution process and also on the enforcement and conflict side. So the three points that I really wanted to drill down on, firstly, surround the, the issue of use, also the examination process and how long this takes. And then finally, I just wanted to address a few points on the contentious side um, before the UK and EU offices. So starting off with use, which is probably the most important difference, the key thing for US stakeholders to really bear in mind is that there is no need to file evidence of use when filing a trademark application, and that applies before both the UK and EU offices. So this is particularly important for stakeholders that haven't yet put their products to market or haven't quite finalised their service offerings, but want to get that protection in, in the UK and the EU. Now, following on from this, there's also no audit system in the UK or the EU. So the EU and the UK offices will not carry out their own audits of existing registrations. And that's unlike the US, where it's becoming a lot more prevalent for the US office to carry out audits and in some cases even cancel rights entirely if, if they find that there's no evidence of use. So that's quite an important point and quite a big difference between the two or the three systems. There is a parallel in the UK and the EU, and that's there's two things really. One is it is possible to attack a registration once it's been registered for five years on the grounds of non-use. So, so really that's an equivalent, but that would have to be carried out by third parties. It's not done by the office itself. And there's also a general principle of what's known as bad faith. Now, this isn't available at, at the EU, so the EU office won't ever examine on this grounds. The UK office will. And what it means really is they will look at whether or not there has been an in genuine intention to use that particular trademark as a trademark. So a good example of the sort of registration which might fall foul of this is a registration that might have been used in a commercial dispute, maybe to block one party from using a particular trademark when there was no real intention to use that trademark. So that's the sort of scenario where bad faith would apply. There has been some case law dealing with bad faith in the context of registrants filing overly broad specifications of goods and services. So, for example, covering goods or services which fall far outside of their core activities and there was no real intention to use. And the, the key case covering that is at EU level, uh, before the Court of Justice, it was, it was a case called Skykick. And what that's taught us is that the ramifications of a finding of bad faith in that circumstance really would just lead to the specification being narrowed down. So there's no real risk in the UK or the EU of a registration being lost entirely, just because it's later found that maybe there wasn't an intention to use for all of the goods and services that it covered. So that again is quite different to the US position where, as we understand it, it's quite possible and actually common for registrants to lose their rights entirely if they're not using. The other point just to quickly mention on that is also there's no need to file evidence on renewing a registration either. So it applies throughout the registration and maintenance process in both the UK and the EU. So moving on very quickly to examination generally, two points I really want to make here for US stakeholders to bear in mind. And one is that 
the UK and EU offices tend to be quite lenient when it comes to letting broad terms through to registration. So this is particularly useful for stakeholders in technology industries where they're working with emerging and developing technologies, which can often be quite difficult to describe, especially to the level of detail that is sometimes needed on, on a trademark registration. So it's just worth bearing in mind that the UK in particular is likely to be a lot more lenient with that and, and it's much more easy to get broad terms through to registration. So the scope of those registrations are likely to be a lot broader than in the US. Another key point is that the, neither the UK or the EU offices will refuse a trademark application on the basis of any earlier rights which may exist. They might flag them to you and notify earlier rights holders, but they won't refuse it de facto. They won't do it as a matter of fact, unlike in the US, where obviously it's, it's quite common practice for, for examination procedures to pop up with citations that can in some cases block registrations entirely. So the combination of these really means that there are fewer issues, generally speaking, in the UK and the EU, which in turn leads to trademark applications uh, being a lot more cost effective, really, and usually going through to registration quicker. So just finally, the points I wanted to make on the contentious side is, is again, US stakeholders who are, who are thinking about having a dispute in the UK concerning their trademark rights should bear in mind that in particular in the UK, they can actually be really cost effective to run a trademark opposition dispute from the beginning through to the end, assuming that there aren't any particularly complex grounds or you know, a lot of evidence isn't required. And that's quite important because unlike in the US, there really is no need for depositions or written discovery uh, or, or any formal disclosure requests. It's all quite a streamlined procedure, which assuming that you can push the opposition through can be quite an easy way of dealing with a dispute before the UK offices. So in contrast to that, the EU IPO, because it has so many different types of appeal routes and various tiers of appeal, can actually take a lot longer and be a lot more costly, particularly if you're taking a, a dispute all the way through to, for example, the Court of Justice of the European Union. So I think the key takeaway is that UK in particular oppositions don't have to be prohibited in terms of their costs and it can usually be quite a quick way of dealing with a dispute before the UK offices. So on that I'll just hand you over now to Anna who's going to just run you through some of the enforcement and conflict points. Thanks Daniel um, and hello to our to our webinar viewers. Um, I think the first point I wanted to make in terms of, of conflicts is that um, the provisions, the sort of legal provisions, are broadly the same in the UK, uh, EU and the US. Um, but I'm just going to flag the areas of, of that I've seen in practice um, of being of being different and that have come up, you know, for our US stakeholders. So um, the first point I wanted to make is that we have um, across the EU and UK double identity trademark infringement, which is an identical mark being used for identical services. Um, now, in theory, this is a clear cut case um, if, if that happens and there's no evidence of, of confusion required or no likelihood of confusion. But however, um, a developing area of EU law um, is has arisen in the context of keyword advertising cases whereby the use of a third party of an identical mark for identical services is only infringing if it's liable to affect the functions of the trademark. And the core function is is the origin function. Um, so effectively, you know, where this has all come out is that um, 
in Google AdWords, you will have seen if you type into Google, um, say you type in uh, Microsoft, um, it may come up with a sponsored ad for Apple for Apple's products. And in theory, uh, in the background, that is that is the use of a trademark because what's happening is, is someone's bidding on an identical mark for identical services. Um, and so this is technically a double identity situation. But what the Court of Justice has said in these situations is that um, there's really only infringement where the sort of person, the Internet user, believes that those two entities may be, con may be connected and was confused. And so this really adds a requirement of, of, of confusion into the double identity situations. Um, and this is frequently used as a defence, not just in terms of these keyword advertising cases, but also more generally. So that's just one thing to note. And this is the ongoing developing case law. The second point is that obviously we have like confusion similarity cases, um, much like the US. But the point I wanted to make here is that, as Daniel sort of touched upon, is that when this is dealt with at the trademark offices, it's dealt with in quite a formulaic tick box way. Um, essentially, the goods and services are put into a computer database and it comes out with whether or not there's similarity. However, in the national courts or in the UK, uh, the infringement actions um, look at likelihood confusion much more like what we understand the US opposition to be like, which is that they look at whether there's actual confusion on the ground, really, and they assess this through evidence of witness statements and surveys and, and cross-examination often. Um, and the UK IPO is, is, is sort of somewhere in between the two. Um, so that's just worth noting that even while the legal tests are the same, the way they're assessed across the different uh, forums um, can be different. Um, two further points I wanted to make mention, which are kind of sort of maybe uh, slightly strange to, to US stakeholders, um, are, are the, is, is the implication of, of national rights on the EU opposition or cancellation procedures. So first point I wanted to make is unregistered rights. So these are rights acquired by use. Um, there's no unregistered EU trademark right, um, as there is with sort of the EU design law. Um, but there are many overlapping systems of unregistered rights across Europe. And, um, and these are, you know, creatures of national law. So they differ. Often in continental Europe, you have laws of unfair competition. Uh, we have in the UK uh, passing off. Um, but one of the issues I've seen, you know, quite a lot with with US stakeholders is that they may have a um, well-known brand in the US. They're thinking of launching in the UK um, and you may find that on the ground someone in the UK is using the exact same, the same mark for the same goods and services. But if the US company doesn't have a registration in the UK and they don't have any trade, which is the core thing to, to prove any kind of passing off, you know, they could easily be you know, there can be some issues in terms of um, in terms of passing off from from the smaller UK entity. So that's really something that needs to be considered. And, and unregistered rights are, are a kind of a unique thing that needs to be looked at in, across Europe. Another point is, is the impact of national registered rights. So along with the EU registration system, we have national rights. We have those in the UK, we have those and they're all across the member states of the EU. But how these operate within the EU is that they can act as a bar to the use or registration of a European Union uh, trademark uh, registration. Um, so we have, say you have a 
Slovakian national right, um, or no, sorry, a third party of Slovakian national right, that can actually um, be be relied upon in an opposition against the whole EU trademark application. So you can't just carve out the different European Union jurisdictions you're interested in um, until, unless you then, well, you can't do that in an EU trademark context. What you can do is you can convert your application into various national trademarks across those, so in all those member states that you're interested in, except for this can be a very expensive process. Um, and this can be a source of frustration for clients who you know may not have an interest in a particular territory of the EU, but have to deal with, with those issues. Um, but obviously now in the UK, we, we're no longer part of the European Union, so I'll just finish off by, by mentioning Brexit. So the status of this is that for trademark purposes, effectively the UK left the EU on the 1st of January 2021. Um, what's happened is there have been comparable clone UK registrations have been made of all EU registrations and they've automatically come across into the UK register. However, for pending European Union uh, applications, they have not been uh, cloned and uh, US stakeholders will have you have a priority period deadline to refile in the UK any uh, of those pending applications, keeping the same date of priority, and you need to do that by September 2021. So I'll just now finish off by speaking back to Daniel because he's he's working on the ground a lot with these issues. And just you know, Daniel, what what are you seeing in terms of uh, how, how Brexit and what 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 clients should do, and what what do you think is likely to happen in the future? Thanks, Anna. Yeah, I think, I mean, first and foremost, there's obviously now an influx from, from not just US stakeholders, any sort of extra UK stakeholders to secure those rights in the UK, really. So for anyone, I mean, an overarching generally applicable tip is that any businesses who are operating in the UK or want to have some protection in the UK and previously had either pending EU rights or have no rights in the EU, but have been considering the UK, now is obviously the time to either extend those pending EU rights, as you say, Anna, to the UK, and ideally do that before September so that you can claim that earlier priority date. And if not, obviously in all the dealings going forwards, make sure to bear in mind that agreements, for example, or commercial dealings in the EU are now no longer encompassing the UK. So that's, that's the most important thing. I think another thing that I'm experiencing a lot now is that there may be commercial agreements, potentially settlement agreements that previously may have prohibited stakeholders from filing for a national application in the UK, even though that particular stakeholder may have had an EU right, which previously would have covered the UK. Now, of course, those stakeholders that had registrations, they've now got automatically been given a cloned UK right, so that's a separate national right. Now would be the time to look at agreements like that and think about what are the implications of this new UK right that's been created and whether or not that might cause any issues with any existing settlement agreements, license agreements. So it's worth thinking about things like that. I suppose one thing I'd like to end on is that for a license that's been recorded at the EU IPO, so against an EU registered right, or also th um, things such as a security charge, those weren't tracked across when the UK rights were created. So stakeholders in the US and elsewhere who have previously recorded a security against an EU right or a license should think about also recording those 
against the UK equivalent rights, assuming that they want those particular provisions or um, to get the benefit of those uh, securities or licenses in the UK. So that's something to think about. But I think more or less, we've tried to cover some of the main points that hopefully will be interesting for people out there. But please, please do feel free to reach out to either Anna or I. We'd be very happy to help you. And um, yeah, we hope to, to hear from you soon. Bye now.